2 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to be going through verses, uh, verses 16 down to verse 21, verse 16 to 21, and this is what the Word of God says. It says, again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will, not, I will boast also, for you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, if anyone devours you, if anyone takes advantage of you, if anyone exalts himself. If anyone hits you in the face, to my shame, I must say that I have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Let's pray. Father, again, we just come before you and ask you for your favor. We ask for your blessing as we look at this, uh, this important passage of Scripture in front of us here as we delve into the life of the Apostle Paul, his example, his labors, and the things that you taught him, and in the way in which you used him, we pray, Lord, that we would learn from the biography of Paul. Paul is such a unique apostle and pastor and uh, teacher of the church. You rose him up, Lord, for this very purpose, to use him as an example for all those that would believe after him. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us yet again to learn from his example, and primarily today that you would help us to glean from his humility and from his boldness. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're coming into a, a very famous passage of Scripture. Uh, if you know anything about chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, you know that it's renowned for this long list of Paul's sufferings. But there is sort of a preamble to this. There's an introduction to that whole litany of, of, of things that the apostles suffered in the, in the ministry. And you remember that this list is not detached from a context. It is smack dab in the middle of a context where he is, he is combating these false teachers in Corinth that he's already identified as false apostles who go around masquerading themselves, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, but actually they are servants of Satan. And so that is really the context of what we're looking at here. Uh, but this section here is going to go all the way through, if you look at verse 16, all the way down to chapter 12, verse 6. This is a major aspect of his defense of his apostleship because here the apostle feels the need to set himself apart from these false teachers and then to expose them and to show even more than that that he is actually uh, superior to them. And so right here, this first section, verses 16 to 21, we're going to see the superiority of the apostle Paul over these false teachers by his humble example. And so with that, I've entitled this message, The Power of Humility. The Power of Humility. And very quickly, I want you to turn over to chapter 10, almost to set the tone for everything we'll see. You remember that Paul went on to talk about in chapter 10 of the foolishness of boasting. 
And everything climaxed in this idea of not boasting in yourself. And the reason why people boasted in themselves was because they wanted to be commended by people. They were looking for the approval of others instead of the approval of God. And in verse 18, he says, For it is not he that commends himself that will be approved, but he whom the Lord commends. That is what sets the tone of this whole text. For the Apostle Paul, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, for Paul, it was a very small thing to be commended by man. It was a very small thing to be even criticized or judged or, or, or to suffer the judgment of others. For Paul, the only thing that mattered was the greatest size at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the only thing that mattered to Paul is how will you appear on that day before the king? That is what matters. And so for Paul, he had one indomitable passion in his ministry, and that was to be well-pleasing to God in all respects and let the chips fall wherever they may. Isn't it amazing that when you seek to be well-pleasing to God in all respects, that sometimes people just aren't going to like you. People are not going to approve of your holiness, your pursuit, and your passion for purity and holiness. They're not going to, they're not going to uh, approve of your integrity. And you will inevitably live the life of a lonely prophet, like many of the minor prophets who were disdained, disregarded, and they were completely, uh, completely hated, really, for their integrity. I think of the prophet Amos and the king telling Amos, don't prophesy here with your words. Go over to Judea and prophesy. We don't want to hear about all that God talk. I think oftentimes we live like the prophets. But then, not only is he going to, in this passage, show himself superior to the apostles because of his humility, but then he's going to show uh, the same thing by his sacrifice. And that's the next context where he gives us the whole list of sufferings that he underwent. And then ultimately, he's going to tell us his, this, the, the, his superiority over these false teachers because of the supernatural marks of his apostleship in chapter 12. But here we begin to look at the life of the Apostle Paul, and I love when Paul talks about himself. That sounds kind of man-centered, but it's not. The reason I like it is because we have very little by way of biography on the Apostle Paul. And so he goes into autobiographical detail, my ears perk up, I want to listen, I want to see what Paul was like. Paul is an amazing man. He towers over the biblical landscape as a paradigmatic apostle, meaning he is the chief apostle to, to look at. His life was, was just a, uh, an exemplary life. His, his, everything that he did, Jesus said he called him for this very purpose, to be an example. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 9, Jesus Christ single-handedly picked Paul out of the world and said that he was going to use him as a witness to his name so that he would testify before kings, before rulers, before the people, for the Gentiles, and he became an apostle to the Gentiles. But Paul is just such a, there's very, it's a very hard thing to try to assess in one sermon the greatness of this man. But let me just say this. That the greatness of this man is really found in his weakness. Isn't that amazing? Because he had harnessed the principle, the mysterious principle of the Christian life that says that God's strength 
is perfected in weakness. Notice God doesn't say that his strength is perfected in talent, that his, 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 his power is perfected in personality or celebrity status or wealth or influence. None of that. For God, if he wants to receive all the glory, he is going to use weak vessels. I'm reminded of Paul's words earlier on when he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And so I want you to get acquainted a little bit with the transient side of who you are, the weak side, the the frail side of who you are, and realize that in that frailty, you have a particular opportunity to glorify God in your weakness. Never look at your weaknesses. Never look at your failures. Never look at, your, at the fact that you are not as, as, as godly as that person, as influential as that person, as gifted or talented as that next person. But look at yourself because God made you like that because he wants to shine through you in a particular way. But he's not doing it because you're so great. He's not doing it because of your talents. He's doing it because of his glory. And he wants to be glorified in your weakness. And so he delights to use weak people. And I'm very thankful for that. Trust me. But first I want to show you the first point of this. And this is two ways that his humility is revealed. Number one, Paul's humility is revealed in his boasting. So he's going to engage once again in this very thing that he said he doesn't want to do. That is boasting. He wants to talk about himself in order to shut the mouth of the false teachers, in order to, as he said earlier, to cut off the opportunity of those who were trying to deceive the Corinthian church. Let's look at verse 16 and 19 again. He says, again, I say to you, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as, a, even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little What I am saying, I am saying not as the Lord would, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. That's the unit of thought. This idea of the necessity for Paul to have to boast, to have to talk about himself. We know that for Paul... His boasting was in the cross. We know that for Paul, his boasting was in Christ. We know that for Paul, his boasting was in his weakness. And for the false teachers, they boasted only because of the desire for self-promotion and self-preservation. That's why they were unwilling to suffer for the real gospel. That's why they brought a different gospel, one that was more uh, uh, relevant to the times, we could say, one that more people would accept, a kinder, gentler type of gospel than the one that Paul preached. Galatians chapter 6, verse 12, listen to these words. He says, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. I tell you what, if every seeker-sensitive pastor in this, just in this state or in this county or in this city, okay, and there's a lot just in this city, 
But if every seeker-sensitive pastor began to actually get in the pulpit next Sunday and start actually preaching what's in the Bible, I tell you what, their own church would persecute them for the truth. And they would start by voting with their feet. Because once you condition itchy ear listeners and you give them the truth, they don't know what to do with it. It's as foreign to them as anything else. And that's what false teachers do. False teachers tell people what they want to hear, and they tell people what they need to hear in order not to be persecuted for the truth. Galatians chapter 5, verse 11, he says, I, brethren, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Isn't that amazing? The cross is a stumbling block. The cross is a stumbling block because it annihilates human effort as the basis of salvation. Moralists don't like the cross. Seeker-sensitive churches don't like the cross because you can no longer tell people that it's all about you. You can no longer tell the people that you're righteous based on the things that you do, based on your tithes, based on your church attendance, based on you, you know, participating here based on you signing a card or getting baptized. Isn't it amazing how many things people will grasp onto as the foundation and as the basis of their righteousness? Well, I grew up in the church. Well, I was baptized already. Well, I went forward during an altar call. Well, I got emotional one night. I prayed a prayer. Yes, I lived my life like Satan for the next 15 years of my life, but at least I did the Christian thing. And it's all self, me, me, me. It's all what I can do. It's all what I've accomplished. But for Paul, Paul was unwilling to boast in anything other than the cross. For Paul, it was not as if he, was, he wants to boast. Look at what he says. He says, let no one think me foolish. In other words, this line of reasoning is not really who I am. This is not what I do. I don't go into the churches and try to impress people with my achievements. He, and, and he goes further than that. He even says, it's not even what the Lord would have him do. He gives this disclaimer. He says, what I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness. In other words, this does not adhere to the way that God, the way that Jesus Christ had commissioned him to be an apostle. This is not the way the Lord sent him out to do things. But because of where this church is at in their stage of their sanctification, as one commentator said, desperate measures or desperate situations call for desperate measures. And that's exactly what's going on here. Paul has to engage in the type of foolishness that he doesn't want to engage in for the sake of the church. And that's why he says, if you must, then receive me even as foolish so that I also may boast a little. Paul proves not only his willingness to speak in foolishness, he also exposes the degradation of his opponents. In other words, by saying these things, he's exposing the low level of ministry that these men are involved in, the man-centered level of ministry that these men were engaged in, these, these, these uh, preaching and teaching based on human distinctives based on how many conversions, based on how many people they know, based on who commissioned them, based on their letters of recommendation, all of these things. 
He says, many boast according to the flesh. And there, the word the flesh is important because it, there, it does not mean that unredeemed aspect of your humanness, that sinful aspect of your humanness. But here it just simply means according to human distinctions. Because Paul says, I will boast also. Paul is not engaging in any kind of evil or sinful boasting, but he is boasting along human thinking. And that just shows you the wide range of meaning that this word flesh, sarks, that that word can have in the word of God. But he also does this in order to show the church's compromise. For you, being so wise, you tolerate the foolish gladly. You see, that is where a church needs to be very, very much on guard, is their compromise, what they tolerate in their church. I can't, I can't believe, I'll be honest with you, some of the things that people tell me that they've come out of in other situations the types of pastors they were under, the types of churches they were involved in, the type of spiritual abuse they suffered at the hands of some heavy-handed shepherd or some prosperity preacher or some greedy preacher of some kind. It's just amazing. The church can never tolerate the foolish. The, the church can never tolerate false teaching. That's something that the church has to do. That's the stance you've got to take in order for the church to survive. And this can have, you know, subtle, subtle beginnings, but it can have devastating implications at the end. I mean, I was just reading an article written by, uh, written by Reformation 21 magazine talking about uh, the, the, just the complete uh, free fall, moral free fall of the, the, the denomination, the Presbyterian denomination, the PCUSA, that got just a little bit closer to actually ordaining gay clergy. But where does it begin? It begins with subtle compromises on the Word of God. It begins with subtle compromises on what the gospel is. What the gospel is. I also read, in an addition this week of Table Talk, I hope you read Table Talk, R.C. Sproul's magazine. I read an article there by Burke Parsons talking about the founding of Westminster. And I was just amazed to see how certain godly men rose up and at a time when Princeton was going completely liberal, men like John Murray, men like Cornelius Van Til, men like uh, 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 J. Gretchen Machen, who, who rose up against the face of liberalism and stood their ground. And because of that act of boldness, Westminster Seminary was founded. And I'm glad that that happened because a lot of Westminster um, teachers have blessed me greatly, probably no one more than John Murray and Cornelius Van Til. And, well, I'll stop right there. As John likes to say, I do have a special place in my heart for Presbyterians. But Paul, he will also show the extensive boasting that he does here according to his weakness. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12, 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 there, I mean, we really get to the very heart and soul of Paul's humility. He says there, beginning verse 9, as Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, based on this Christological principle of Jesus Christ, he says, I would rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ 
may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content. What does that look like practically? This is what it looks like. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I have become foolish for yourselves, for you, for you yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. I like the way Paul says that. You could translate that, I am no one. I am nothing. This man had a proper assessment of who he is. Today, when preachers are striving for celebrity status, Paul is saying, I am nothing. Today, when churches above everything are trying to secure fun in the church, make sure it's fun. You've got to have a rock climbing wall on the back of the church because it's fun. You've got to have an arcade in the church because it's fun. You've got to have a Wii and a PlayStation. And Forgive me if I'm outdated on these things. I don't know. But you've got to have video games for your kids because it's fun. Well, listen, church is not meant to be fun all the time. Paul uses the word sobriety. Peter says, be sober. You have an adversary, the devil, who seeks to destroy you, and you're trying to turn church into Disneyland. Well, good luck surviving that, at least if you want to survive in any spiritual way. Oh, churches will go on. Churches, you could grow a big church real quick when you start flooding the church with fun, fun, fun. Because that's what we are ingrained by our culture from the time we are born to the time we die. We are told that you need to have fun. One of the most dreadful things I think anybody can do to somebody who's laying in a hospital bed on his last or her last days of life is to sit them in front of a television so they can watch Wheel of Fortune on their way into eternity. <laughs> They're watching, you know, soap operas and MTV and ridiculous, ridiculous no, our, our, our society, and especially the church, needs a, we need a shot of sobriety. We need a shot of soberness. We need to be awakened to the spiritual realities and the spiritual forces that are at work in our lives because they're not all about having fun. They're not trivial. If Paul were to boast, he was to boast in a different way than they did. These false teachers, they boasted according to their flesh, their human achievements. They boasted by commending themselves by themselves. If you go back to chapter 10, they boasted beyond their measure, boasting in what others had done, trying to take credit for that. They were boasting in these ways because they were seeking to be commended by man. Now, the second thing that reveals Paul's humility is his boldness. Look at verse 20. He says, for you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, if anyone devours you, if anyone takes advantage of you, if anyone exalts himself, if, if anyone hits you in the face. Pretty drastic language here. Verse 21, he says, to my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison, but in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. 
I am just as bold myself. I like that latter statement there. It's almost as he was saying, enough is enough. If people want to talk about the things they've done for the gospel, (laughs) and then he unleashes, you know, verses 22 to 33. and saying, if you want to talk in that way, if I have to answer the fool according to his folly to shut him up, I will. And he does. But we see his boldness here, number one, in his willingness to confront So his humility is revealed through bold confrontation. Isn't that amazing? The humble example of the Apostle Paul is revealed by his boldness. I love that. And even furthermore, by his confrontation, by his willingness to confront false teachers. You know, in our our society today, confrontation is not good. Unless, of course, it's political confrontation. Then you can confront, you know, because you can get a lot of ratings that way. But confronting people is really just, you know, in, in a relativistic, pluralistic society, how do you confront anybody anymore about being wrong, about not having the truth? No, today society is telling you that for you to do that is the height of arrogance. The only, intoler- the only intolerable thing today is to, is to not be willing to tolerate people's heresies. You have to tolerate everything according to society now. And boy, I tell you what, with the advancement of gay marriage, the way it's going, this type of truth right here is going to become very, very relevant to us very, very quickly. But Paul is saying, with all of these descriptions of the false teachers, that this church had got to a place where it had been lulled to sleep. It was just completely oblivious, either that or completely apathetic, to the point where, look, these false teachers could do anything at this point, and nothing would shake you out of it. No matter how many times the false teachers insult you, he uses this word, they slap you in the face. No matter what they do, no matter how bad the spiritual abuse, you're unwilling to get out of that. And to get away from those kinds of false teachers. A lot of people are right here under that type of bondage all the time. And they won't stand up for the gospel. They won't stand up for the truth. But they just sit there and take it. It's amazing. Now, let me go down the list here. Because it is a list. And uh, my expositional heart, I can't just gloss over these terms. So let's hit them one by one, okay? The first one is that... They were involved in spiritual slavery. Well, I like to say that because he says, if anyone enslaves you, spiritual slavery. Now, these words, I think, are loaded with meaning. I think for Paul, there was a lot behind each one of these phrases. There was a lot in his mind. There was a lot of baggage attached. There were probably things that he knew about the Corinthian situation that led him to describe the false teachers in this way. And the first thing is to say that you are under spiritual bondage. You are under spiritual slavery. Isn't it amazing that this is the opposite of what the false teachers would say? That they are there to deliver freedom. True spiritual freedom. But ironically, the very thing they promise, they can't deliver. And as a matter of fact, it's the complete opposite of what they're promising. Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. In the same way, when the Judaizers were bringing in their heresy to Galatia, Paul says 
it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who, sneaked, who, were, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. And in this case, obviously, speaking about legalism, legalism, they were incapable of delivering. And so false teachers are under a curse. They're under spiritual bondage, and they want to bring other people under spiritual bondage. I mean, I just can't think of people sitting there in audiences listening to false teachers. You see them. They're on TBN every night just fleecing the flock and and telling them to put their money on the altar. I saw Creflo Dollar demand that people bring $100 and throw it on the steps of the altar to sow their seed of faith if they wanted to be healed, if they wanted God's blessing, if they wanted to prosper in their life. And, And what did those people do? Oh, they just got up glibly. They got up and just brought out their wallets and threw down their $100 bills. Man. I would have liked to have been the janitor that night. Never know. <laughs> but you know what I mean. People will blindly follow false teachers, and it's just amazing. The blindness, the slavery, the bondage is absolutely amazing. Let me tell you something. This, this is what I thought. You know, I'm going to capitalize on this to remind you of your freedom in the gospel, your liberty. You are Christ's free man. Don't let anybody ever bring you under spiritual bondage, be it legalism, be it antinomianism, whatever it may be, even doctrinal uh, 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 beliefs. You have a conscience. You are a priest unto your God. You are Christ's free man. You are free. It was for freedom that Jesus set you free. It wasn't to bring you under bondage. Paul says, Galatians 5 Verse 13, you were called to freedom. I love that. In 1 John chapter 5, Paul sa- or John says, the commandments of God are not a burden. They're glorious and they're liberating once you're in Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 21, Paul says, the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The glory and the freedom that we have now in the gospel as new creatures in Christ, guess what? One day, the whole cosmos, the whole universe will be brought into that glorious regeneration and freedom. It will be renewed. It will be a renewed heaven and a renewed earth wherein will dwell righteousness. Secondly, there was not just spiritual bondage, spiritual slavery. There was spiritual usury. He uses the word here, if anyone devours you. You see that? If anyone devours you. The word there doesn't just speak of eating some. Devouring is a perfect word because the term actually describes some wild animal ravenously tearing something apart. That's the way it was used in certain ancient Greek contexts. The Septuagint, the writers of the Greek Old Testament, when they translated the Hebrew into Greek, they used this word in the Greek Bible of the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 12, to talk about the invasion and the havoc that was caused by Israel's enemies, saying they devour Israel with gaping jaws, trying to paint just that vivid imagery. And that's what these false teachers were doing. They were devouring the church. Total consumption 
in a pejorative way, in a negative way. Total consumption of the church's resources, total slavery, complete manipulation. You know, this is exactly what Paul was talking about earlier in this book. Chapter 4, verse 2, when he said, We have renounced the hidden things of shame, these underhanded ways, this adulterating of the Word of God. But this is exactly what false teachers do. They adulterate the Word of God. They sell it. They sell it. They use it for monetary gain. They use it for their own sordid greed. And that's what, they, that's what they're in the ministry for. Next thing is not only just usury, but also trickery, which gets back to their deception. Back in chapter 11, verse 4, verse 3 and verse 4, the deception that they try to sneak in there. They try to deceive and take your mind away. That's how all false teaching operates. All false teachers operate in that way. If they can deceive you in the mind, then they can deceive you in the bank. If they can deceive you in the mind, then they can deceive you in the bedroom. I mean, how do you think, you know, Jeffers with his Mormon cult out in the middle of nowhere was marrying child brides? How do you think Muhammad, the, prophet, the, the so-called prophet of Islam, how do you think he was able to marry a six-year-old girl and take her home when she was nine years old? Because he got the people to believe that this was the will of God. And so trickery and deception is always involved. The next thing is spiritual pride. This is the complete opposite of the humble example that we're seeing right here with Paul. They were haughty. Look at the words. If anyone, you tolerate it, if anyone exalts himself. Now notice the language there. Very intentional, I believe. They are exalting themselves, meaning they are lifting themselves up. And they are the ones doing it. It is a middle force here. They're the ones who are actively trying to exalt themselves over everyone else. And so they have pride in their heart. They have fallen, as Timothy says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, they have fallen to the condemnation of the devil himself. Pride. Pride is what unleashed Satan into the world. We should stand in awe of pride when we see it in our hearts and immediately say, God, forgive us of our pride. It was pride that caused the devil to fall. And it was because of pride that the devil was consigned to the earth. And it was because of pride that he deceived Adam and Eve. And it was because of pride that sin came into the world and death through sin. And death reigned all the way from Adam to Moses and on and on. So the next thing is not just their pride, but also, again, their, their spiritual degradation, their insult. This is the final word, and I think it is meant to be a bit climactic. Sort of brings everything to a climax because of Paul's language here. I don't think Paul could have said anything more severe. He says, you tolerate it if anyone hits you in the face, if anyone slaps you in the face, and it was interesting to read the commentaries this week because I had a stack of commentaries, and some of those commentaries were arguing that, you know, that there are many people who take the position that this is physical, literal abuse, that, that there were literally, you want to talk about a heavy-handed shepherd, <laughs> there are actually, there are scholars that are arguing for literal 
physical force, violence against, and they quote the similarities between the Pharisees and, and the Sanhedrin, the Septuagint, or excuse me, the, the, the Sanhedrin and the, and the high priests and how they would oftentimes beat the people they were interrogating. And they were spiritual leaders. But I take this to be probably more metaphoric, that they were completely insulting the church. They had come to devour the church. They had come to assert their own pride. They had come to rip the church off. They had come to take, take the church's uh, resources. They weren't there to be spent for them. They wanted to see what they, had, what they could gain from them. That was their real motive. And it, they were harsh on top of that. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 24, he says that he is not lording his authority over them, but he is working with them for their joy in the gospel. And this is what made Paul such a beautiful example of pastoral ministry to me, is that he had seemingly the perfect balance of boldness and gentleness, of, of correction and meekness. He was Listen, he wasn't afraid to confront, but at the same time, he did it in the meekness of Jesus Christ. With the same level that he was concerned for doctrinal purity and, 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 and ecclesiastical purity in the church, he was also affectionate. A lot of pastors struggle being affectionate with their people. It's because typically they're not affectionate themselves. Or they just have all sorts of personality quirks and idiosyncrasies, and they just don't even like to get close to people. I've been around pastors like that. It's really awkward. I try not to be like that, but I try to look to Paul's example that he was so gentle with the church. 2 Corinthians 10.1, Paul says, I exhort you. That's strong, right? Exhort, I urge, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. There's that proper balance. And then 2 Corinthians 13, 9, he says, we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. That's always his point. His point is always put the church first. This we also pray for, that you be made whole, complete. For this reason, I'm writing these things while absent, so that when I'm present, I need not use severity. He says, that he doesn't want to be stern, even though Christ gave him that authority. He says, this authority is given to him for building you up and not tearing you down. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And if you don't know this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and chapter 2 is a glorious pastoral manual for ministry. Just go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and chapter 2, and there you can see what a pastor should be like, what pastoral ministry is all about, what church ministry is all about. It's glorious. It's beautiful. It's a real high point in the doctrines of ecclesiology and pastoral ministry. But anyway, chapter 2, verse 5, this is one of the most intimate of passages that really convey to us what Paul was like. He says, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know. See, see that? Uh, he's not trying to get one over on you by flattering you, telling you what, what a great person you are, okay? He's not there to, you know, sort of, you know, get you all, you know, prime the pump, so to speak. He's very earnest. 
And he says, nor with a pretext for greed. It's not why we're here. God is witness. That's a very, very solemn there declaration, calling God as his witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. You see that? If anyone had the authority, if anybody had the ability to yield their authority for wicked and evil ends, it was Paul. He was an apostle of Christ. He could have declared his supernatural revelations. He could have spoke about the gifts of the Spirit that were flowing through him. He could have shown off his apostolic signs and wonders. He could have done all of that that people are doing all the time on television. At least they're trying to do it. He could have done that. Boy, the humility it took for this man to withhold that evil impulse. He says, but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own children. There are some nursing mothers in here. There are some moms in here tenderly caring for their children. You know how much you care for them. You know how gentle you have to be with them. You know how you have to cater to them and, and, and be cautious with them. Spurgeon wrote a, in, in one of his books, he speaks about the fact that, you know, a, a young disciple is like a baby. And you bring a baby into a room, and the next thing you know, a baby, it just kind of takes control of the whole room, right? Just be quiet. The baby is sleeping. Grown men telling you, tell them, be quiet, you know? Spurgeon says, baby is king. Baby's king. And that's the way the disciples should be in the eyes of their pastors. Disciples are king in that sense. They, they, they should have your, 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 your number one concern should be for their health, their growth, their nourishment. He says, we had such a fond affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. That's what I mean. This is one of those hallmark passages where Paul just bears his heart as a minister. So his humility is revealed by his bold confrontation. And then to keep the symmetry straight, his humility is also revealed through bold dependence. His bold dependence. Let's look at the last verse there, verse 21. He says, To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. And the reason I say bold dependence is because the boldness that he is talking about here is the boldness of verses 22 to 33. But that doesn't look like boldness. That looks like suffering. That looks like a man who's been beat down. That looks like a hungry man, a man that, was, that, that spent a whole, a, day, a whole day and night out in the middle of the ocean adrift. That looks like a man that suffered fasting intentionally and probably hunger in, unintentionally. That looks like a man that was beaten with rods, who was stoned, who was persecuted, who spent more years in prison than probably anyone in here. He spent time in prison for the gospel. He was persecuted. He was beaten. He was betrayed. And so all of those things cause me to say that the boldness that he is speaking of here is really the boldness to depend on God. 
to, to cast himself at the mercy of God, to be an offering for God, to be spent for the church, and to spill himself out for in, the, in the service of the gospel. And that's what he's doing. He says, to my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. And so Paul is saying again with a lot of irony here, these people have abused you so bad in comparison to my example, we look weak. But unless they might think that he is in fact weak, he is not. He establishes his boldness to boast about his personal credentials. But it's not in the way that the false teachers did. It was in the way that would glorify the power and the grace of God in him. What's the connection, therefore, for you and me? I thought long and hard about this, and I thought the connection is this, that we, too, boast in our weakness, that we, too, identify what are those things that would make most for the glory of God in our lives? How can we boast in our own weakness so that the strength of God can be glorified? Maybe when the finances are not there, maybe when times are tough, Maybe when the family is in disarray and you are clinging to God with all that you have, it's probably not a good time to boast about how great your family is. But it's a good time to boast about how you're clinging to God. And it will bring God glory. Maybe in your infirmity, your sickness, your physical illnesses, you can glory in the strength and in the power that God gives you. Maybe in the ministry, when you're weary, when you're discouraged, boast about God's grace to strengthen you there. When you're in grief, when you're in sorrow, boast about His goodness. Like Joseph, knowing that God works everything out for the good of His people. When you're in the midst and you're in the furnace of trials, boast in the triumphs of Christ. Boast in the fact that He is leading you always in procession, in triumph. In this way, all believers can boast in God and what He does. All believers can hope and trust in God and set themselves apart from the servants of Satan who don't boast in this way. They boast in their numbers. They boast in their influence. They boast in their achievements. But they don't boast in their weakness because to the unregenerate, weakness is not attractive. If you're just in it just for the glory of God, there's got to be more than that. No, there's not. For the genuine believer, the glory of God is our chief aim. For the, for the believer, the glory of God is the reason we're alive. And that's, and that's what makes our hearts soar, is to see God glorified in our life, whether by life or by death. Let's pray. Father, Lord, give us a heart to glorify you in every season. Lord, every circumstance, there's no one here that can escape the trials that are coming. And we know that there are trials that you have ordained for our lives. But the question is, is how are we going to walk through those trials? And in what way are we going to glorify you in our weakness? Forbid it, Lord, that we would ever grumble and complain in our weakness. Forbid it, Lord, that we would ever look at, a, at, at our weakness as, a, as an evidence of your turning your back on us or Lord, of the fact that you are untrustworthy. But Lord, we know that we serve a faithful God. And so like Peter, help us, as he declares there in 1 Peter 4, help us to entrust ourselves to a faithful 
creator. You know the things that concern us. And lastly, Lord, I pray for the preservation of your church. I pray for the preservation of our gospel. I pray that we never move away from the gospel, that in a hundred years we never move away from the gospel, and that in a hundred years we would only come to know how much more the gospel is essential for our very life. And so, Lord, we pray for your hand of protection over Heritage Grace. I pray that our church would always be doctrinally sound and that it would always be Christ-centered and God-exalting and that we would always be fixed and grounded, rooted, and cemented in the Scriptures. We thank you and bless you, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.